Well, it it goes back to the the question you had asked me, which is what draw me to it. Right. Let's loop back around to Stephen King. That incredible story that Stephen King wrote that, that, that captured me when I read that in different seasons. I mean, it just seized me. It's, it's one of the great stories of all time, and I thought if I'm lucky enough to get my hands on this thing and then lucky enough to get somebody to recognize how good the story is and make the movie, then it's fantastic. So it's, it's really the gift. The gift that keeps on giving is, is the one that Stephen King gave us. Mm. He gave that story to the world. I was able to co-opt it, steal it, borrow it, and then pass it on to these guys in the form of the screenplay. It's really, we're all responding to what Stephen King had given us, I think. Welcome back to a brand new episode of Not A Bomb Podcast. This is the podcast where we go back and talk about movies that bomb theatrically or maybe the critics just didn't like. Brad, this is the final pick of November where we went back and talked about movies that were nominated for multiple Academy Awards but bombed at the box office. So you got the final pick. What would you pick? I did. I picked 1994's The Shawshank Redemption. And Troy, I have a confession to make. Uh Uh-oh. So all month we've been talking about, oh, we're only going to pick films that won Academy Awards. Yeah. Um, we lied on this one. <laughs> oh. Because, to be fair, it was nominated for seven. It didn't win any. What? But if you you look up on IMDb, this is the most popular film of all time. It doesn't get more kind of prestige than this. I mean, it's... So, look, this is going to be the only month we were going to be able to talk about this movie that seemed fitting. So look, we 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 lied. I we lied, but we, yeah, I didn't look it up. So, <laughs> well, you you found out last week when I dropped the bomb. I I had never seen this film. Yeah, I was surprised. Had you never seen TNT on a Saturday afternoon before ever? Oh hey, I this thing popped up, uh, and and we can we'll get into this when we talk about the movie. The scene that seemed to always show up is the rooftop scene where he basically offers to do taxes or hide some money uh, for the guard in response for a few beers. And Morgan Freeman narrates over that whole thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and that was the scene that would continuously pop up if I ran across this thing on television or walked into a room and somebody's watching it. For whatever reason, that is probably the only scene I've ever seen of this film, and it's the same thing over and over again. Did you know the twist? Uh, no. Uh, well, okay. <laughs> did I know the twist going into the film? No. Did I know okay. the twist maybe halfway through the film? Yeah, it was okay. it's easy to spot, but no, I, I mean, I knew, I knew of the film. I knew of the source material. I've never read uh, the book that contains this, which is sort of a, a novella more, more than anything. But I, I got to tell you the trailer as many times as I've seen the trailer and in 1994, I'm sure you'll get into this when we go back and, and talk about what came out. 1994 is a pretty stacked year in terms of film. And this was just something that I never really gravitated to. 
have bought it multiple times and, and just never watched it, which is par for the course, I guess, for us. I, I want to say entertainment wise, 1994 might be the most important year of my life. Oh, okay. Strictly on an entertainment basis. Shows like the X-Files is still is, is kicking. Yeah. Seinfeld is kicking the Simpsons album after album that comes out um, that year is amazing. And then the films of 1994 arguably are the best. And you can argue that 1994 is the greatest film year of all time. Yeah. Well, we got we got done talking about 1939. That, that one's hard to top. But hey, before we get into all this, I, I was curious uh, when when I started to go down this path and really watch this film, it just kind of dawned on me. I'm like, well, what are some of the best prison films out there? Because Shawshank Redemption, you know, the majority of the film takes place in a prison. Uh, the whole plot is somebody goes to jail, accused of murdering, you know, their wife and and her lover, and then really what happens to that character and the people that he befriends. And, and I got to thinking, uh, well, what what are some of our favorite prison films? Now, initially, I'm like, well, my goodness, there's only just a, a, a handful, right? But when you go back and actually look at how many times movies are set in prisons, be it modern day, past, science fiction, science fiction, et cetera, the list is pretty long. So I thought it would be interesting to talk about maybe three of our favorite Maybe not the best prison films out there, but maybe three of our favorite. So uh, I want to kick it over to you and, and see if you want to share your first one. Yeah. And so I tried to think a little bit more about what are my favorite, not necessarily what I think are the best, just the ones that, I think are my favorite. Yeah. That's the angle I took <clears throat> on it too. Yeah. So I started off at 1947's Brute Force, oh. um, which is pretty still pretty poignant today. Um, kind of a Kind of a look at prison and prison methods um but through the lens of like 1947 but it's still pretty poignant today i I suggest if anyone is curious on this one to definitely check it out um i enjoy it a lot i haven't seen it in a bit but after watching shawshank and us kind of spitballing this idea to talk about prison films i'm like you know what i need need to go back and watch brute force again um I I i don't think i've ever seen that really okay I'm I'm definitely going to go buy that and watch it. Okay, you'll like it a lot. Okay, well, my first it's, pick is like a crime film, like crime noir film. Right oh, up well, it's alley. perfect. That's perfect. Yeah. My my first pick, I think, is a fun movie. If you could you could say that there was ever a fun film about prison, <laughs> but I, I mean, there, there's no denying the holy trinity of actors for me uh, is Jackie Chan, Tom Cruise. And Burt Reynolds. And so I, I have to talk about 1974's The Longest Yard with Burt Reynolds and Eddie Albert. It, it really combines two genre films, which is the sports film as well as the prison film. Yep. And it's this great underdog story. And I think it's one of the best films out there that when you talk about character actors and Burt Reynolds sort of just his charm, you you can't get any better than the longest yard. It's so much fun to watch. And Eddie Albert, I, I think he matches Burt Reynolds where Burt Reynolds has all of this charm and this charisma and confidence. Eddie Albert as the warden is one of the best villains that you can see um, from the seventies, I think. And I, I, I love that film. I've never seen the remake, the Adam Sandler one. 
everybody says it's it's not bad but it's I, not terrible yeah i gotta tell you i mean if i if i get two hours i'm probably gonna go and watch the original any chance i get versus a remake and you're that would not be wrong of you um, <laughs> okay as someone who thinks that the remake is halfway decent it doesn't come anywhere close to the original so um <clears throat> another right. one i wanted to bring up is 1993's in the name of the father Ooh. starring ddl i thought Daniel about that Day one um, I think it was nominated for six Academy Awards. Um, Daniel Day-Lewis, probably the greatest actor of our generation. He's, he's, um, he's in the Pantheon. I'd agree yeah, with that. Also, Emma Thompson's in this excellent movie. Again, we start talking about this list, and I'm like, God, I haven't seen that movie forever. But I know uh, when I, I saw it a few times that I absolutely loved it. So I'm going to go back and watch it again. So that's In the Name of the Father. Okay. All you need to know is like Daniel Day Lewis is in it, and you're like, okay, I it, the performances are probably pretty pretty stellar. It, the stuff he was doing, especially in that time period, it's transformative. I mean, he he really get, you know received that reputation of being one of the greatest actors of all time simply because of the run of films he was doing at that time period. Yeah, yeah, uh, the Guilford uh, bombings, pub bombings. Uh, these four guys were wrongfully accused, and blah blah blah. Watch the movie. There you go. Okay. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to stick with the Holy Trinity of actors. So we talked about Burt Reynolds. Unfortunately, we're not going to talk about, talk about Tom Cruise. So that only leaves yet. one yet. Yes. We'll, we'll talk about Tom Cruise later. Okay. Uh, so that, that leaves, um, Jackie Chan. Now this next one, I'm not going to say is an amazing film, but I like it. And I like it because it's an interesting stretch for Jackie and also Samo, who's in it too. Uh, and I, I actually think it's a pretty good film. Uh, I think it gets crapped on by some Hong Kong aficionados uh, and wrongly so. I think it's got some great choreography in there. I like the concept. But I'm talking about none other than 1990s Island of Fire, also known as The Prisoner. So if you ever see... Um, the U S release of it, it has Jackie Chan on the front cover and it's called the prisoner mm -hmm. and truth be told, he's in it probably a total of 10, 15 minutes. So he doesn't really star in it as much as like, uh, have an extended cameo, but it does have Tony Lung, Andy Lau, Samuel Hung. It was produced by Jimmy Wang Yu. And it was rumored that Jackie did this movie as a favor to Jimmy because back in the eighties, Jackie was in hot water with some triads <laughs> we could spend a whole podcast on just, Hey, how, how did, did the triads affect movie making in Hong Kong in the eighties? It, it's very interesting. And Jackie, along with some other high profile actors were one of the actors who kind of stood out against the triads, which is sort of a big deal. It, yeah. And, and he uh, caused a ruckus and the rumor goes that Jimmy had to step in and help him out. Um, Jimmy also helped, uh, Jackie out of his contract with low way at the time. And so he ended up uh, doing Island of fire as sort of a repayment to Jimmy. The whole concept is kind of crazy. It's these, these prisoners come in to um, this facility. They end up possibly dying, but they're not really dead. And they end up being used for these, for this hit squad, the secret hit squad, the warden's using. So it's kind of goofy. And I think it, I think it was filmed in Taiwan so it's a Taiwanese production or something, but I, I think it's a lot of fun. And it's, and it is that typical nineties Hong Kong action cinema, but Jackie has a total serious role. 
so does Samo. It does steal a little bit from another prison film we're going to talk about. There, there's a scene that's just a blatant ripoff from it. But but to me, it's fun. And, and if you can kind of embrace that 90s Hong Kong action cinema of that time, and you want to see Jackie in sort of a different role other than you know the happy-go-lucky jokester who um, is the hero who saves the day, I, I think you'll like Island of Fire. Okay. I don't know if I've seen that. It's it's one to check out. Like I said, okay. if, if you can track down the version Island of Fire is the way to go, not so much The Prisoner. Uh, it was one of those films when Jackie, again, was getting you know his uh, what second wave in the U.S. that they started releasing stuff like this and, and cutting it down a little bit and dubbing it. So I would highly recommend. There's some there's some good Blu-ray prints of the original cut out there. Oh, okay. I'll have to check it out. All right. What, okay. What's, what's your number one? My number one, uh, probably one of the most successful prison films. It's in the in the sci-fi genre. Part of it takes place in Baltimore, my friend. Mm-hmm. It is Twelve Monkeys. Yeah. Brad Pitt's, uh, your boy Bruce Willis, uh, Chris uh, Christopher Plummer's in it. I think Twelve Monkeys is a top 20 film for me of all time. So um, I absolutely love this movie. So, so when, the next time you come out here, we're going to Philly and we're going to Eastern state penitentiary. Oh yes. We're yeah. Because yeah. it was filmed there mm-hmm. and it's creepy even to today's standards. <laughs> but okay. it's awesome. No, for, I, I, I love 12 monkeys so much, so much. Oh, it man, was, what a good uh, pick. when I saw that in, so it came out in 95. So I probably rented it in 96 to say 13 year old Brad was, um, had his mind blown. So, yeah. Okay. I, I think it's interesting. So would, would you say 12 monkeys, especially at the time when it came out is one of those films that kind of got you excited about movies? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I mean, anywhere like 94 films that came out in 94 through I'd say like the matrix and fight club, like those late nineties, early two thousands films that seven, like six, seven year run is where I was like, I am going to love film for the rest of my life just because of this output that, that directors have been putting out in the seven year, six year period. Okay. And 12 monkeys is one of those films that just turned that switch on in my brain. And, um, I, it's hard for me to like ever turn on it. I don't think I could ever turn on 12 monkeys. Um, but I don't think you would have to, because I think it's damn near perfect. So it's funny. That's kind of your number one. Uh, my number one had that same effect to me because it's, it's a film my dad introduced me to. And it was, Hey, there there's more to movies outside of ninjas and star Wars and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Now I are there. There, apparently there is there wow, is okay there, there are films that can tell a really good story and have um a bunch of layers to it and this is one of those handful of films that when i watched it all of a sudden i was like oh i think my dad's right like you you can take a movie and there's more going on with it and what it's trying to say even outside of the story and it may be an obvious choice when you talk about like top prison films but for me, it's it's one of the movies that got me interested in just the art of film and the history of film. And that's none other than 1967's Cool Hand Luke. Oh, yes. Yes. So I, I just I I can't. And, and we'll talk about this when we talk about the Shawshank Redemption. But if you're if 
like science fiction prison movies. So no escape fortress, stuff like that. Uh, I, I think they're a blast, et cetera. But when you get into this dramatic element in real world genre prison films, it, in my head, I'm always comparing it to 1967's cool hand Luke, because it had such an, I don't know, effect on me in under, and, and I, you know, immediately come to, to love Paul Newman and all of that. Yeah, the Newman performance in that is iconic. Yeah. But you know, just, just all of the things that it's tackling within that film and watching it over and over for so many years. And it, again, it's one of those films that every time I revisit it, I'm always taking something away from it. And I think it has a lot to say about the human condition, but I mean, if we're, if we're talking top prison films of all time and our favorites, this is one of the ones where I think it converges of being one of the best films of the 60s but and, and best in the genre, but also one of my favorites, too. I love Cole Hand Luke. Yeah, it's funny. I really love films from the 40s, the 50s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. Like, but the 60s, I just have like a weird spot. Unless it's like outside of The Godfather and stuff like that. I, I don't know. 60s films never really spoke to me and in trying to go back and watch stuff now. Um, it's, it's difficult. I don't know what it is about 60s films that never really got to me, but I just, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what it is. And this, like, I totally understand. Cool Hand Luke is a fantastic film. I'm not taking that away. I would rather watch brute force. And, and I don't know what that says about me, but you know, no, it's it just, just it I, is what this, it is. This is a genre that it's kind of crazy. You're you're talking about putting a person in a confined space and mm-hmm. trying to develop a story out of that. Uh, you can you can do it in a fun way, like the the longest yard. Um, you know, a serious way, like something like Cool Hand Luke or Brute Force. You can have a science fiction setting with it, etc. It it does create just an interesting environment or premise to tell a story and it also allows you to do a bunch of different subgenres within it as well right uh-huh. uh and and we're not even talking about like the women in prison subgenre films Ooh. too which are i mean you want to get into the pornographic variety of films it's crazy i mean think about all the the japanese films um that was a subgenre of that as well i mean I, it just kind of blew my mind when we started talking about Shawshank Redemption and you and I were texting and saying, Hey, do we want to talk about like top Stephen King adaptations or maybe top prison movies? And you said, Oh, I, I there's, we're probably not going to be talking about this genre again. But as soon as I started looking up all these films, I'm like, Holy cow, there's a lot of bombs in there to talk about, but yeah. it just, it, it kind of blew my mind how many different subgenre prison films there are too. Oh yeah. Yeah. And we didn't even get in like, comedies i know the longest yard is kind of a comedy but like stir crazy like yeah. you know then there you get into that genre where it you play it for laughs um which is which is a weird thing to do right like we're going to go to prison but we're going to make it a comedy oh dude it, when, at one point we're going to talk about rob schneider's was it big stan mm, our, yeah. our good friend john turned turned us on to that one uh i sat down to watch it no oh boy mm. we we got to talk about that at some point well Hey, how about we go on the other spectrum of quality and talk about 1994 Shawshank Redemption instead of Big Stan? Uh, you, the, I, I assumed wrongly, just like you assumed this won a bunch of Academy Awards. <laughs> no, um, I didn't assume. I just, I needed a, 
I needed a, an excuse to get this in. No, that's fine. We're, we're doing prestige, so whatever. Yeah, this is not it's our, our it's our it's our show, Troy. We can make the rules up as we go. I agree. And it's not our day job either, so we can <laughs> screw up here. Uh I just assume this was a juggernaut of of a box office performer, and that wasn't the case on its initial release. Um, kind of like the Wizard of Oz, which I think a lot of people are surprised that comes out in 1939. It it's just this major revolution, but Wizard of Oz doesn't catch on until the 50s when it starts playing on television over and over again. Shawshank Redemption sort of had uh, that same life cycle where it's initial release, it's a bomb, and then something happened uh, right around Academy Award season and even the home video market, but. You want to take us back and talk about like how this came into the world and, and it's bumpy ride. Yeah. So Shawshank really has like three waves and, and we'll get through it. So release wide September 23rd, 1994. Well, I say wide, but released publicly um, September 23rd, 1994 with a reported budget of $25 million um, on its initial release. It makes $16 million, losing the studio quite a bit of money. Um, I say initial release because it gets announced that it's going to be nominated for, I say, seven Academy Awards. And in the February-March timeframe, comes back out and uh, basically rolls, basically rolls to another like 12 million and then gets it up to about 73.3 million dollars total um so a modic a modest modest success say that again modest success um and yeah you would assume that the most popular film on imdb would have been a huge success and it was not i would say the name shawshank redemption probably isn't great um, but if you think about films that came out around this time, films change in three weeks, right? Pulp Fiction comes out um, three weeks after this. There's Forrest Gump. There's all sorts of stuff. Um, let's just get into it. 1994 films. Um, like I was talking about, I think 1994 might be my favorite year for films. Oh, okay. Again, I've already said Pulp Fiction, Forrest Gump. Leon the Professional, Interview with a Vampire, The Lion King, Stargate, The Crow, Legends of the Fall, True Lies, The Mask, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, Natural Born Killers, Speed, which you and I just watched together. Yeah. Dumb and Dumber, Clerks, Clear and Present Danger, Ace Ventura Pet Detective, Four Weddings and a Funeral, Street Fighter. Street Fighter doesn't belong in that list, <laughs> but I put it on there. Disclosure, Wyatt Earp. Maverick, Color of Night, D2 the Mighty Ducks. I'm going to include that one. Ed Wood, Naked Gun 33 and a third, Heavenly Creatures, Airheads, In the Mouth of Madness, Little Giants, Beverly Hills Cop 3. The list goes on and on and on and on. 94 was huge. Um, and I just don't know if a prison movie called Shawshank Redemption, based on a novella by Stephen King, really was going to play to audiences. Um, and initially it didn't, it needed, it, it, it needed the Academy to come out and say, wait a minute, this, you guys, this movie is actually really good. Well, it's uh, because even the, like Ebert's got a four star review that is glowing about this film, but nobody literally calls this movie. One of the greatest films of all time. 
it's just it's crazy to me like this is a this is a time period when a nominated film or something that gets picked by the academy awards this is where the academy awards carry some weight and it affects Mm -hmm. the box office the box office performance and and i know we've talked about this now in terms of the relevancy of that award show and award seasons now but i don't think you can underestimate how big of a deal it was in the 90s to get that nomination and how it affect either uh, the theatrical performance or even your home video performance of people either renting or buying right so it it was a cash cow for you to get that because it pushed more people into seeing films that they may not have which again would lead me to i don't think the academy awards has the relevance it does anymore simply because look at some of these films like Shawshank Redemption that would come under the spotlight, have a second life. Whereas today, uh, Coda, anybody? No? Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Okay, so the second wave would be the VHS rental market. 320,000 rental copies were shipped throughout the United States. Um, Basically, strong word of mouth, the Academy Awards. um, And it became one of the top uh, rented films of 1995. And then the production company Castle Rock uh, was um, purchased by Turner Broadcasting Systems. And so TNT was able to show this thing um, basically nonstop from 1997 through I don't know when it was. But I think one year it made up over 150 hours of their um, broadcasting hours. And so if you think about it. They show it once a week and it's three hours. They're showing it, what, 50 times in a year? Wow. Um, Because I I think the runtime is like perfectly, like if you add like 30 or 40 minutes to this movie, it's three hours. Like you can make this into a three hour, like, hey, we're going to show this from seven to 10 at night. And you just got yourself a Saturday night. I remember I traveled a lot during the like late nineties for sports and stuff. And you would be in a hotel on a Saturday night, you would turn on TNT and there's the Shawshank redemption. So I, I specifically remember watching this a lot of times in, in a hotel. So yeah, modest success at the box office, but rental. And then um, I don't know how much castle rock since they were bought by Turner, how much that really affected this film, but it definitely, put it out there to everybody. Um, I mean, you could argue like this is maybe one of the most seen uh, movies of all time just because of that. Cause it was always on. Well, I, I, um, I think wizard of Oz still holds that, that yeah, title because but... it's a, it's a kid's film. The sisters aren't in the uh, wizard of Oz. So <laughs> you know, it's a little different, little different um, rotten tomatoes um, sits at a 91% with the uh, critics. I still think, that's again a little shocking to me. Ebert absolutely loved this film. Um, a lot of other critics liked it. Um, no one really, like I said, no one really said, Hey, this might be the greatest film of all time. Uh, but everyone seemed to think it was definitely good to great, but not the film that it kind of has turned into now. Um, audience, now this one. Audience is at a 98%. Oh, to put that into context, The Wizard of Oz was an 89. So this is... Is that, the, is that one of the highest ones we've had? Or is that the it, highest It one? is the highest one. It's okay. the highest um, user score on um, Rotten Tomatoes. 
IMDb has it, I believe, as the highest rated film um, and the most popular. So, yeah, um, it is uh, beloved by millions of people. You know who also is not beloved by, Troy? What? Not beloved by? Movie Guide. Oh, they got some issues (laughs) with it, huh? Yes. Movie Guide. Pagan (laughs) worldviews. Hold on. Uh, Sadly, the review was a little bit truncated, but it does have some things. Okay. Um, For those not aware, Movie Guide is a Christian website that uh, reviews films not for their quality, but for their content. And they use a four to negative four scale Negative four being you're going to straight to hell and plus four is you're knocking on heaven's gates. Troy, where does Shawshank Redemption lie? See, I, that's tough for me. I actually got, I got a Christian vibe out of some sequences. (laughs) Yeah. You think? Yeah. Uh, but I think some of the content based on movie guide scale is going to drag it down a little bit. So I'm going to guess a negative two. Negative three, Troy. Ooh, goodness. Wow. They really okay. don't like it. <clears throat> this is a little short, but then I will give you a little bit of extra at the end. Okay. Um, paganism, semicolon, 126 obscenities. Well, yeah. There 19 are a lot profanities. Yep. Two suicides. Oh, yep. One by hanging. One by gunshot to the head. <sighs> yeah. Gu- yeah. Guards violently beat prisoners. Oh, they do. Repeated acts of homosexual rape. A lot. Yep. Light voice homosexual acts. Mm-hmm. Refer- references to oral sex. Strongly and clearly implied adultery. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Ready for this? Yeah. Rear male nudity. That oh, means the, ass, baby. You Give did. Me that ass. You did see some of that. Okay. I'm seeing the negative three here. Okay. Alcohol abuse. Oh, okay. Homosexual prisoners engaged in homosexual acts. They, did, and, didn't they just mention that? Yeah. But... They say the sisters aren't homosexual. They're just, they would have to be people, whatever. Okay, yeah, okay. Uh, several quotes of scripture and illegal acts are justified. Huh. That gives you your negative three. Okay. And last but not least, films that you could see, September of 1994. This came straight to video, but we've talked about this series before, so I wanted to bring it up. Amityville, 1992. It's, yeah. it's about time. Yeah. Comes out in 1994. I nah, I don't get that. Um, we have what's a good one here? Quiz show. Oh, that was a good okay. Film. Yeah. Um, and a time cop. Oh, Jean Claude. Yes. Yes. Amazing uh, film. Terminal Velocity. Another film. Charlie Sheen. Ero- Love it. Erot- erotica. Yeah. Yeah. And the River Wilds. Oh, hey, that's a good thriller. Yeah. Yeah. So again, I would take that month. In 2022, anytime. Okay. Uh, well, let's let's talk about the people behind the camera, in front of the camera. Wow, Brad, we have some heavy hitters here. I got to tell you, the thing about the movies we talked about this month, there's usually a theme. You've got a lot of pedigree with a lot of awards, and probably at the top of their game, doing the films that we've talked about, right? And and there's no difference here, except for maybe. The director, the director, right? So Frank Darabont, we've talked about him on the show before, specifically when we talked about 1988's The Blob. So we'll we'll get there in a second. But as a director, Frank Darabont came on the scene doing a short in 1984 based on Stephen King material called The Women in the Room. We'll talk about that here in a second. His first major feature film is 1994's Shawshank Redemption. 
He follows that up with another film, The Green Mile in 1999, then The Majestic in 2001, goes back to the well for more Stephen King stuff in The Mist 2007. Now, he does some TV, obviously, in between all of this as well, which leads him also to, I think he directed and wrote the first episode of The Walking Dead in 2010 and -hmm. served as executive producer. Now, there was some controversy with him, and he was fired during season two, which you can go on the internet and find out all of those juicy details. And then one of the last things he has a credit for is Mob City in 2013. Now, he, I I don't want to say he's retired, because he has been, I guess, walking around trying to pitch an adaptation of a Stanley Kubrick film. Uh, that never got made, uh, but I f- get the feeling that Frank, Is that the Civil War film. Yeah, I, I get the feeling that he's sort of had his fill of Hollywood. He's he's been known to be uh, <laughs> I don't know cantankerous when it comes to like the studio executives and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, but I mean, w- what's your take on him as a director? Um, I mean, I really like the Mist a lot. The Majestic is okay, and I think The Green Mile is excellent, and we'll get to my thoughts on The Shawshank Redemption, but he's good. The I don't know. I, I'm trying to think of what his signature would be, and I, I don't know if I would, to look at The Mist, would I know specifically it's a Darabont film? I, I don't know. I don't know, but I think yeah. his films are good. Yeah, I, I I would have the same reaction to him is that, yeah, I think he's a good director. It's a shame that he's not doing more. Now, I don't know if that's because of his choice or maybe reputational-wise, some studios don't want to pick him up or his projects uh, or just this whole he wants creative control and he can't get it yeah. based on some of the things that he wants to do. But, yeah, I, I, I think the only thing I can say is filmography is, man, I, I just wish there was more stuff for him um, – to do so that you could come back and kind of go, what, what is the Frank Darabont film? Yeah. I, I think the first two seasons of the walking dead are spectacular and everything after that is pretty boring. So yeah, I agree. And and what's interesting as a uh, writer, so he did the screenplay for this and it's based on a uh, novella or it's not really a short story. It's, it's one of four it's parts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was originally called Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption by Stephen King, and it's from a 1982 collection called Different Seasons. Uh, I think some people will also know Stand By Me comes from that book as well or that collection. The Body, yep. The Body, right. Uh, we, we talked about his screenwriting credits, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors in 87, Blob in 88, The Fly 2 in 89. Then he writes The Shawshank Redemption in 94. I think you mentioned this at Movies to See in 94. He also did Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Yep. He did a lot of stuff for the adventures of young Indiana Jones, that television series, um, did the green mile in 99 and the mist in 2007. So it, it's interesting. This guy has, uh, between Stephen King and some of the horror, fil- horror films. I mean, you, you hear the name Frank Darabont and you don't necessarily just gravitate to, he, he could be one of the best horror writers out there. If you look yeah. at some of the stuff he's done. Yep, absolutely. Oh, let's, let's talk about these guys. Oh boy. Cinematography, director of photography, Roger Deakins, man, uh, 15 nominations for best cinematography, arguably one of the top five best cinematographers of all time. Yeah. And what's crazy is the Shawshank Redemption was his first nomination. So he's won twice, once for Blade Runner 2049, which you picked up in 2018, 
and then followed that up the following year in 2019 for um, uh, the film 1917. Yep. Of his work, I think the standout for me will always be No Country for Old Men from 2007. I don't know if you have a favorite Deacons. Uh, you know, I was going to say, I think Sicario might oh, be so my favorite. Too. Yeah. Um, I mean, just alone with the house and how that shot is and when it explodes. Um, oh God. I mean, he did true grits. I know. It's so good. I mean, the stuff he did with Coen brothers, Oh brother, where are thou? It's fantastic. I mean, Oh God, just, I don't know the fact, the fact that he was not nominated for no country for old men is a travesty oh shit he also shot the jesse james movie too the assassin oh yeah, assassination yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesse that's james. right he's he's oh. gonna come up quite a few times i mean we're, we've got blade runner 2049 on uh on the list and when we get to that it's gonna be two hours of like man this movie looks amazing yeah it's simply because yeah. of the way he, sh- he shoots I mean, even even I don't love this movie as much as some of the other Craig James uh, James Bond films, but Skyfall at least. I mean, it, it looks oh, amazing. Skyfall is one of my favorites. I, I, you'll be hard pressed to find a better cinematographer. The dude paints with the camera. He paints yeah. with the camera. He's so good. Uh, here's here's some other just amazing people working behind the scenes. Edited by Richard Fran- Francis Bruce. Three nominations for film editing, <laughs> Shawshank Redemption in 94, seven in 1995, and Air Force One in 97. I don't think they've picked up a statue yet. We've got music by Thomas Newman, another 15 Oscar nominations. And here's here's another crazy one. Shawshank Redemption was his first nomination. Okay, Thomas has a huge filmography, even going back to like early 80s with stuff like Revenge of the Nerds, Lost Boys, in 1994 alone, this is what he did. Threesome, The Favor, Shawshank Redemption, The War, that Kevin Costner film, oh, and yeah. Little Women. Yep. So all of, he worked on all of those in that one year. So he is a workaholic a little bit, but you you have to admit the musical score for this really adds to um, just the feeling and the tone of this. and it would be hard to watch this film without Thomas Newman's score kind of accentuating some of the key scenes in it too. Yeah. Um, in case people didn't catch that between your cinematographer and your music by that's 30 Academy Award nominations, <laughs> yeah. 30 just to put it back out there. Yeah. It's nuts. Now let's, we're not done with this whole Academy Award talk, especially when we get in front of the camera we get none other than Tim Robbins, Oscar winner, not for acting, but for best director for Dead Man Walking in 1995. But he's also won an Oscar for acting for best supporting actor in a supporting role, Mystic River 2003. Yeah, I almost picked Dead Man Walking for one of my favorite um, prison films. Really? Yeah. I, I know I've seen it. Uh, I don't remember that much about it. I think it was one of those that I didn't watch until it got nominated. And then I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm going to go see it kind of thing. Now we've talked about Tim Robbins because he's been on the show with Howard the duck. I mean, 1986 was the Tim Robbins year for top gun and Howard the duck <laughs> Merlin baby. Yeah. 94. He did the Hudsucker proxy, which was a Coen brothers. Super film. underrated. One of my favorite Coen brothers. Films. I, I agree. A thousand percent. We got the Shawshank redemption. He also is in ready to wear 
and IQ, which was, I think, the uh, was that the Thomas Edison romance uh, movie with Meg Ryan? Yes, with yes, Martin Martin uh, Matha, uh, Walter Walter Matthau. Yeah. Walter Matthau. Yep. I I think we said. I mean, I'm a. I've always been a big Tim Robbins fan. He's not your typical Hollywood actor because he's tall and lanky and it, it kind of weird. Um, but stuff like Bull Durham. The player. Sorry, sorry, I re- love him. Yeah. The player. Yeah. I mean, he's really good. Isn't he in uh war of the worlds? Isn't he the, the dad? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I, I, I think he's a powerhouse. We also get Morgan Freeman as red. I just assumed Morgan Freeman had a just over his fireplace, like 18 Academy Awards. Uh, he's only been nominated five times. His first one was for the film Street Smart back in 1987. Best actor mm-hmm. in a supporting role. Uh, that's a little film with Christopher Reeves. If you guys haven't seen it, check it out. It's really good. He won best actor in a supporting role for Million Dollar Baby in 2004. Uh, and right around this time, so leading up to Shawshank Redemption, he Oof. was in Unforgiven in 1992 does Shawshank and then turns around the following year and does outbreak in 1995. Uh, and he also was in seven. Yes, he was in seven. I don't know. Mm, is there a unforgiven Shawshank redemption? Seven is the triple crown, if you will. Yeah. I, is, is Morgan Freeman just, I, how do I, how do I say this? The minute Morgan Freeman is in it, do you think everybody just assumes the movie has credibility? Absolutely. Yep. Yep. His Lucius Fox. I mean, you're like, oh, they got Morgan Freeman to be Lucius Fox in the Nolan Batman trilogy. Like, oh, we just stepped it up some. And you throw in like Gary Oldman. You're like, okay, this is like prestige <laughs> level stuff here. Yeah. It's, it's always, it's always crazy to me to see him in any kind of supporting role because there's no small scene with Morgan Freeman. Uh, and I know everybody talks about his narration and his voice and everything else, but man, I got to tell you, nobody talks enough about his facial expressions, his reaction, how the man handles silence. Uh, when, when we talk about this film, just his look and his expressions sell more than his voice or narration. And I, I don't think he gets enough credit for that. I think everybody yeah. loves his voice, but n- you take a step back and just look at how he delivers lines with his eyes. It, it's just fantastic. There's a scene in, in seven where he is over having dinner with Brad Pitt and, uh, Gwyneth, was it Gwyneth Paltrow? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Gwyneth Paltrow. Yep. And, um, the train comes and like, instead of laughing, like he waits a few seconds and then he laughs about it. And I always remember that. I'm like, that is, such a good scene about literally just a train that shakes their apartment. It could have been played off as nothing, but he totally just destroys it. And there's also another scene in the Shadow Street Redemption where he says, well, I guess I'm Irish and he just totally sells it. And you're like, yeah, anyone else. I don't know if that lands, but Morgan Freeman just totally kills it. No, I agree. We also get Bob Gunton as Samuel Norton. So he's the warden uh, around this time. He, was doing Demolition Man in 1993, does Shawshank, and then follows that up with Dolores Claiborne in 95. Now, you see Bob's face, then you recognize he's been in a ton of films. He has 139 acting credits. He he just really is one of the great character actors, I think, of the last few decades. And, and speaking of character actors or just actors in general, 
we get William Sadler as Haywood. Uh, I, I think a lot of people will know him from Bill and Ted's bogus journey as the grim reaper. I love him in die hard too. Uh, I think he's, he's one of the best villains and he's, co- he's collaborated with Darabont on the Shawshank redemption, the green mile in the mist. So they, they do like working together. Yeah. We get Gil Bellows as Tommy. Dumbass. <laughs> so what's crazy is we go to his filmography and you're like, holy cow, 114 acting credits. I must have seen this guy. Like I I watched Shawshank and I'm like, well, who's this guy? Then you go back and look at his filmography. You're like, well, I must have seen him. I've seen a lot of his work, but I don't remember a thing about him at all. Like he's he's just he's like paint. He just blends in. Uh agreed. Yep. Yeah. We get James Whitmore's Brooks. Another fantastic character actor, two Oscar nominations. He won Best Actor in a Leading Role for Give Him Hell Harry in 75. I kind of remember him from some movies in the 50s. I don't know how familiar you are with him, but I remember him from Kiss Me Kate, which was uh, a musical that was done in 3D. It's kind of a retelling of Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew. And then also the science fiction film Them, about the giant ants. Oh, yes. Yep. Yep. Okay. And then... Last but not least, and, and we here we go, baby. We've talked a lot about this, but Clancy Brown is Byron Hadley, Captain the Prison Guards. Uh, we talked about him ad nauseum when we discussed 1986's Highlander, and I think people will know him from Shawshank Highlander and also as Mr. Krabs from SpongeBob SquarePants. So that is correct, yes. There you go. A little bit on production and development and jump in here, Breck, because you're more familiar with this film than I am. I, I actually learned a lot by just kind of reading about the making of the film. But Darabont uh, first collaborated with author Stephen King in 1983 on the short film adaptation of The Women in the Room, buying the rights for uh, from Stephen King for a dollar. Now, Stephen King has this thing. It, it's called like a dollar deal. And King basically uses it um, for directors who want to build up their resume. Yep. So basically says you can adapt one of my stories for a dollar and uh, turn it into a film. And what ended up happening is after receiving his first screenwriting credit in 87 for A Nightmare on Elm Street, Dream Warriors, Darabont returns to Stephen King and says, hey, I want to purchase the rights for Rita, Rita Hayworth in Shawshank Redemption. It's a 96-page novella from different seasons, and he, and he buys it for $5,000. Uh, and apparently there's a story, too, where Stephen King never cashed the check and handed back the check uh, to Darabont in a frame. Um, five years later, Darabont wrote yeah, this. In case you ever need uh, bail money. Bail money. Steve. Yeah, that's right. Yep. yep. Five years later, Darabont wrote the script over an eight-week period. So here's where it gets kind of crazy. At the time, prison-based films were not considered likely box office successes. <laughs> but Darabont's script was read by then Castle Rock Entertainment producer Liz Glotzer, whose interest in prison stories and reaction to the script led her to threaten to quit if Castle Rock did not produce the Shawshank Redemption. Director and Castle Rock co-founder Rob Reiner, so that is famous director Rob Reiner, mm-hmm. uh, probably most people know him from When Harry Met Sally, also liked the script. He offered Darabont between 2.4 million and 3 million to allow him to direct it himself. Reiner, who had previously adapted King's 1982 novella, the body into the 1986 film stand by me was going to cast Tom Cruise as Andy and Harrison Ford as red. That would totally been, different, totally different movie would have been an amazing film. It's some alternate reality. That movie exists. And I want to see it. 
It's Tom Cruise. It's got to be amazing. He fits in the pipe a lot easier. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Castle Rock offered to finance any other film Darabont wanted to develop. Darabont seriously considered the offer. He basically says, hey, I, I grew up poor in Los Angeles and thought, man, if I take this, it, it's going to increase his standing in the industry. Um, and that Castle Rock could fire him anyways, right? Uh, and just give the film to Rob Reiner. But he says, nope, I want to stay on as director. And he says in a 2014 Variety interview, quote, you can continue to defer your dreams in exchange for money. And you know, die without ever having done the thing you set out to do. Now, Reiner served as Darabont's mentor on the project instead. And within two weeks of showing the script to Castle Rock, Darabont had a $25 million budget to make the film. The project was getting some notoriety from a couple of famous people too. So people who at the time were up for the role of Andy included Tom Hanks, Tom Cruise, which we talked about, and Kevin Costner. Now, you mentioned this. Um, 320,000 VHS rental copies were shipped out through the United States. It was the Academy Award nominations, the word of mouth, the video rentals, the Turner Broadcasting System. That brought it to just the zeitgeist, right? And decades after its release and being broadcast on a regular basis, um, it is recognized, and you'll see this quote over and over again, as one of the most beloved films ever made. Yep. And in 2015, the United States Library of Congress selected the film for preservation in the National Film Registry, finding it culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. And it's dedicated to Alan Green. You know who Alan Green is? Who's Alan Green? Alan Green is Frank Darabont's former manager who died of AIDS. Okay. Two seconds after this movie is over, it literally says dedicated to Alan Green. Yep. Not a bad way to go out. That's true. So, yeah, I, I, it's fair to say, I, I guess before we get to sharing our thoughts on the film, it's fair to say that society in general or the, or the film going audience has really embraced this story, right? Just about everybody I know have seen it. I felt like I was the last person on the planet that was that was holding out. You might be. I, I possibly could be. Do you know if if it has this type of popularity internationally, or is this just a U.S. thing? I mean, it on initial release, I think it made like forty three or forty five million dollars internationally. So I think it's was somewhat popular, more popular internationally than it was domestically. Now, I think it's quite an American film. I think the uh, industrial prison complex that we have in the United States is a very United States problem and, and speaks to our identity. Um, but I don't know. I don't know how this plays internationally. I'd be curious to know if we have any international listeners that have seen this movie and you know, think it's as popular there as it is here. Um, yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, every time I read something about it, you you read this stuff about the Library of Congress. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I assume with the Internet Movie Database, in order for it to rank that high, you're yeah, you going to have to gather some reviews all over the world. But in terms of American cinema and American critics and American people talking about this, you do hear that word beloved. But I don't know what kind of weight it carries in the UK, New Zealand, other English-speaking countries, Canada, etc., or, or even, you know, non-English speaking countries. And, and does it even translate 
well into something that is a cohesive and interesting story. Like, do you, do you have to understand the American prison system in order to understand this film? I don't know. Yeah. <clears throat> just, just interesting thoughts, but how about we take a quick break? Uh, cause I know you've been bugging me about this since it was a first time watch. Uh, you, you kind of want to know where I land on it, but let, how about we take a quick break and we come back and we, we talk some Shawshank redemption. I cannot wait. All right. We'll be back. Uh, may I help you? Uh, I'd like two of those, please. Hot dogs? Yes, sir. And three of those. And one of those. And five bars of these. And a cup of that nice hot liquid. Uh, coffee. Uh, coming right up. Oh, and two bags of those peculiar white coffee material. Uh, you mean our crunchy popcorn. Uh, uh, shall I wrap that for you, sir? Oh, that's all right. My saucer just outside. <laughs> they come from miles to enjoy our intermission. Charles Bronson is Nick Colton. His specialty, impossible escapes. His fee, $5,000 a second. His job, hit a maximum security prison and escape with an innocent man. He has 10 seconds from now. Escape. Breakout. Charles Bronson. Robert Duvall. Jill Ireland. John Houston. Breakout. From Columbia Pictures. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Bronson. Breakout. Brad, we're ready to get into this. Uh, I, I believe it or not, want to start with you because <laughs> here, here's the thing. I'm, I'm just going to be honest with you. It, this movie threw me for a loop when I started to read all of these reviews, um, the Roger Ebert review. I, I mean, it was crazy how many times this thing would show up with just sort of this glowing, perfect review, perfect score, 10 out of 10 beloved, uh, just inspiring all of this. And I'm just wondering, does it resonate with you in that same way? Uh, or, or do you have a different take on it? I mean, you, you've been repping pretty hard for this thing. And -hmm. like you said, this was a way to kind of get it on the show. So I'm, I'm just curious, does it really deserve all the accolades it gets as, as far as being as popular as it is? I think so. And, and actually I think in 2022, it might be society might be trying to overcorrect and it might be a little bit more underrated now. Um, I will say for some context, my mom's two favorite films are stand by me and the Shawshank redemption. 
Ironically, they're both Stephen King novellas. Um, my mom was a big reader um, and a pretty big uh, Stephen King fan. So I remember sitting in our basement when I was probably 13 years old with my mom and my dad watching the Shawshank Redemption and probably being a little young for some stuff that's going on, but ultimately it having an impact on me. And that has stayed with me for hell 26 years. So it's impossible for me to get that feeling away of watching something so impactful with your mom and dad and just feeling like this is the pinnacle of filmmaking because I'm 13 years old, you know, I've snuck off and seen Pulp Fiction, but they don't really know that. And I've seen Clerks, but they don't really know that. But this is the film I just, I watched with them and knowing that like the body, which was turned into stand by me, another film that I just thought was absolutely amazing, but this being something a little bit more, um, but I absolutely adore this movie. And I, I think this film to me represents a film that is probably the most rewatchable film that we have. Um, really? It, yes. That, I, I I'm think, just going to be honest with you. That shocks me. I, because look, my wife had some people come over. They had the theater. Mm-hmm. I had to like watch this upstairs, you know, poor me. I had to watch it. Oh, darn. You went went from 120 inches movie screen to like 65 or something. Okay. But anyway, um, and it was late, but here I am watching it. She's done. She comes in and literally comes in when basically Tommy comes into the movie and she sits there and watches it to the very end. And I think this movie just has that magnetism to it, to where you're just wanting to see Andy and red and the guys, and you want to see to the end, regardless if it's Andy in the film room with the sisters or it's, uh, you know, Andy out of solitary confinement at whatever point it comes in. I think most, if not everyone is sitting down because they want to see the escape and they want to see Andy free and they want to see Andy and red reunited. Sure. There's plenty of, stuff that's wrong with this movie. I think the GED stuff adds like 10 minutes to this movie that doesn't need to be there. Um, I think maybe the Brooks stuff goes on a little too long, but I think the Brooks stuff is in here to show the insul- the institutionalizedness of prison. And when red gets out, you have to have that suspicion that maybe he's going to do what, what Brooks does. And there's that suspense that, he and Andy don't get reunited. Um, But I think ultimately it comes down to, this is just a a movie about friendship and it's about platonic love between two men. And I think that to me resonates as someone who has been close with many men in my life. I'm very close to you. And if we were in prison together, we would have these talks of hope and being like, when we get out, I'm sure our we're going to start a podcast. <laughs> yeah. We're going to start a podcast and we're going to do these boats, but ultimately that's what the Shawshank redemption to me is. It's a film about friendship and hope. 
Um, even in the places where you feel like there is no hope, keeping hope is um, important. And that's what I get from this movie. I Sure, there's some stuff that goes on in this movie that is tough. Um, Hadley is a bastard. The sisters are tough. But all of that, I think, is in this film to play a part to just kind of show just how brutal and stuff really is. So when there are the moments where the guys are on the roof, when they're, um, you know, reading books in the library, it feels earned because you know where they've come from. Um, But, you know, we'll get to it, but we'll talk about the performances later. But I, I, I just, I, I adore this movie. So, so much. Um, do I think it's perfect? I don't know. It's, I, I started I, watching this. I started watching this at nine 30 last night and it was almost midnight when it was over and I didn't feel the runtime at all. And I've seen this movie a thousand times. I know exactly what happens in this film beat by beat. And it's still two hours and 20 minutes. Doesn't go by any faster. Like it just flies by to me. I don't get the, it feels long. I think this movie is an absolute breeze. What What about the, so I'm, I'm really curious when you said that you discovered it at an early age with your parents and, and how it impacted you, what aspect of the film impacted you? Was it the message of hope? Was it the performances? I no, mean, it was not. It was the, okay. it was the last 40 minutes. When, when Andy gets out of solitary confinement and you think he's going to kill himself and I know exactly what it is. It's when he throws that damn chess piece at that poster and it makes that sound. And then that, that thing in the back of your head goes, holy shit. And he escaped because at the, at, to me as a 13 year old kid, that was not possible. I didn't think escaping from the Shawshank uh, prison was possible. So it was the nuance of the story or the twist. I should say. Yes. Yeah. Okay. It, the, the, because I was not smart enough to pick up on, not on any of it, but most of the stuff about friendship and how like, yes, sure. Some of that stuff's heavy handed, but mo- mo- I remember specifically being the twist and, and thinking he got out. How did he get out? What is going on? This film has completely changed on me. Um, and I think that's what got me as a young viewer and then going back as I'm older, picking up on all the other things about friendship and having hope and the 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 Christian myth, myth, mythicism that's in this film that may or may not be there, but seems like it's there. Um, but yeah, it, it, it just, yeah. When Andy escapes prison, I think this movie just goes to a whole different level. Now, I've read about how the endings were going to be different and they were going to end it on on different points and kind of leave, leave some vagaries in the ending. Like does, um, does red go? Red I think get the to biggest the one was the ambiguous portion of where red ends, yeah, right? Does he get, yeah. Does he get into the border, get across the border and stuff like that. But ultimately I like that the friends unite at the end. I like knowing that these two guys red, especially put up with 40 years. Now he did murder people. He was uh, guilty, but, you know, he was rehabilitated, I guess. And, you know, that the two guys were able to reunite and 
have some semblance of humanity for their last little bit of their, of their lives. So yeah, I, I, I will rep for this movie really hard. I think um, if you were to put this on at any point in time, I'm watching it. I, I just, it's just got this magnetism to it that I, I just, I cannot move away from. Okay. Uh, I, I can't, and I, I mentioned this already. I can't help but compare dramatic prison films against 1967's Cool Hand Luke because to where you had talked about this film having such an impact based on storytelling, the twist and everything else. I think when I saw Cool Hand Luke, I had this just revelation of this isn't just about um, Paul Newman's character coming in to this establishment, this this chain gang and everything, and, and being so disruptive. And then even when you get to that church scene, you're like, what is this movie saying? Um, and I guess I, I saw that at a young age, and it made an impression on me to where, oh, this is an interesting kind of genre mm-hmm. because it's it's really testing the limits of an individual and it's trying to say all of this stuff, right? And and it was a movie that opened my eyes to like a movie that addresses the human condition to a certain degree. So I, I know you're not supposed to do that with films because each film has a unique view. Uh, but I think, I don't know, this movie has a lot of similarities to it in that you're, you're trying to find hope in the most dismal places. Right. And, um, tackling things like holding on to your self-worth and how we build myths around common people, because how Luke affects the, the other inmates and, and his peers. I mean, the same thing happens in here and you see his peers sort of elevating him to this, this mythic proportion, right? Some might say as like a godlike or, or Christ-like figure. Exactly, yeah. a very Christ-like figure. And then even I think both movies kind of tackle anti-establishment. Uh, and I think Cool Hand Luke really rallies against that in a big way. Like mm-hmm. I, I think that's its its focus might be more on on anti-establishment than sort of the friendship bond that maybe Shawshank, re, you know, Redemption is. You, you can make that argument. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think cool hand Luke just is this film that has so many layers to it. And it's probably one of America's greatest output of film. Um, I would not say that about Shawshank redemption. As a matter of fact, your, your comparison, if I was at your house again and it was 10 o'clock at night and I walked into your living room and I, I saw you walking Shawshank redemption, I would go back to my room and find something else. Wow. O- only because, I, and this I, is now the the last episode of Not a Bomb podcast. <laughs> well, let, let me let me let me just say this. Nice run. I I think it's a really good film. I do. I I don't think it's one of the best films ever made. I kind of scratch my head at those comments about it being beloved. Um, there and there are some amazing performances in this film, and it deserves any and all the accolades for the acting. But I think the difference is, and I don't know if it's because of my age, uh, and, and maybe I'm a little bit more cynical. <laughs> and so you discover a film that layers on this hope and everything else. And then you go, yeah, I grew up on Cool Hand Luke. And, and, and that type of view 
and maybe tackling the same uh, subject with a little bit more edge, whereas this one just didn't move me. So I, I ran across a review from Destin Howe in the Washington Post from 94, okay? And this is this section I'm going to read. It's a little harsh, but it hits on some of the elements that I think work against this film. So bear with me here, okay? Okay. I'm not agreeing with all of this, but I do think it taps into a couple of things that I think prevent me from embracing it the way that you do. Whereas I go, I think it's a really good film. I would recommend it to a lot of people. The fact that you love it so much, I'm like, man, that's awesome. I would not put it on that pedestal. But but I think this section kind of explains in my head or articulates why. So I'm, sitting, said, on, I'm sitting on my hands. Okay. But it's, so here we go. Quote, all right. But it's clear from the start that Robbins, despite the hardships is emotionally protected by his own innocence. He charms everyone and eventually parlays his business skills into a useful commodity. By the end, these grim authoritarians and jailbirds are eating out of his hand. In fact, Robin's effect on everyone is so cheesily messianic that they have called this Force Gump Goes to Jail. Speaking of jail, Shawshank the movie seems to last about half a life sentence. The story, chiefly about the 20-year-old friendship between Freeman and Robbins, becomes incarcerated in its own labyrinth of sentimentality. It wanders down subplots at every opportunity and ignores an abundance of narrative exit points before settling on the aforementioned finale. And leave it to pandering first-time director Frank Darabout, man, that's harsh, to ensure no audience member leaves this film unsure of the ending. Heaven forbid a movie should end with a smidgen of mystery. So this is where I think the review hits me a little bit where I go, I I kind of agree with this force Gump goes to jail kind of thing. So the film feels very basic to me. A guy goes to prison for killing his wife and her lover says he didn't do it. He meets Morgan Freeman Morgan Freeman tells him prison is hard and it's not, not a fairy tale, right? And bad stuff happens to the guy. But the guy keeps busy and he ends up expanding the library. And then you find out that the guy didn't actually kill anybody. The guy escapes and in escaping reveals all the bad people in the prison and all the corrupt things that they did. Morgan Freeman gets out on parole and meets the guy on the beach and they live happily ever after and it turns out Morgan Freeman is wrong. This is a fairy tale. And okay, don't give up hope. Got it. I, I need I need something more meaty on the bone, in my opinion. Not just the sentimentality that I think is is just when you start peeling back a layer, it's like, oh, more sentimentality. Oh, here's some more sentimentality. Oh, we got more hope in sentimentality. Like I I, I think it dances around some. That interest- doesn't come from everybody. That's just Andy. Everyone else is saying, you're full of shit. We're locked up in here. You're serving two life sentences. I, I understand. You shouldn't have hope. I, I understand that. But I mean, it's done for that. That whole rinse and repeat exactly what you said happens for two hours and 20 minutes. Uh, I mean, like there, there's a couple of interesting things here. And you talked about it with Brooks where it's, it's talking about the effect of institutionalization. And there's some dialogue there. But I don't. To me, it doesn't feel very deep. There, it like derails for the sequence of Brooks, and then you go, 
oh, this is what happens to people who are institutionalized and can't live outside of that. And it goes, oh, we're done with that because we got to get back to this hope and sentimentality thing. Um, there's a little bit of Christian allegory through it, which I think is explored more in Cool Hand Luke, and it's danced around in this one. Um, I think the script does a really good job of depicting the hardship of hanging on to one's self-worth, but then it does feel like it gets into a little bit of that, of that rinse and repeat of, Things are really bad, Andy. No, you got to believe. And then, oh, I get a fairy tale ending. So I get the message. It it does hit you over the head. I think it's a great message. And I'm I'm not saying it's a bad film. I just don't feel the emotional connection that I'm supposed to feel to this thing. And I think the reason why I don't, and like I said, I think I think that review is too harsh. I think why I don't feel the the emotional resonance to it is my brain is trying, it, it grabs onto some of these interesting topics it brings up, but it doesn't do anything with it. And then it goes on to the sentimentality and it, and it, there's just not enough here for my brain to like, and my heart isn't just going to take over with all the schmaltziness of it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Cause that's how I feel about Forrest Gump. Like I think that's schmaltzy and melodramatic. And I would I would agree with the same thing. Like to me, and this and Forrest Gump, I really like both films. I I really like Forrest Gump. I I, don't, I can't say I love it, but I really like it. Mm-hmm. I like if I I love the technical aspects of Forrest Gump. I think the story is good, and I like it a lot. And I would I would put Shawshank Redemption in that same category where it's like, yep this this is f- just like Forrest Gump in that it's not giving me enough for my head to dissect and it's really pandering to all of my emotions. And, um, maybe, maybe if I hadn't have found something like cool hand Luke, this would have impacted me that way. But now that I've seen this template where you can do all of that and have some very interesting insights, uh, and perceptions on a man in prison, and what that means, uh, th- this one just just feels very basic to me. And I don't I don't mean that basic in a negative way. It just feels like it knows what it's going for. Mm-hmm. It's going for this story of hope. But for me, I, I needed something more than that. If you're going to keep me here for two and a half hours, well, I think it was made for that Saturday evening viewing, where people just want to watch a film that ultimately makes them feel. Good. They want to go through a journey. They want their hero to have gone through some conflicts along the way, but ultimately they want to see the good guy win and get reunited with his, with his buddy. So I'm not disagreeing with that critique. I I think for me, that never crosses my mind. Like I, I, the small teeniness, I, it just, maybe I'm just giving it a pass, but Oh, I, I look I, to, I, to I, me, to me, I buy their relationship as two guys that are just friends. Oh, I do too. I think the best thing about this movie is watching that friendship develop between Andy and red. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, that's and I the think core it's of the story. To, I think it's unfair to like, say like the run, like it's somewhat boring. Like I, I, I think watching their, their relationship develop is I, I didn't almost like a, like a romantic film done better than any romantic film you've ever seen. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if I said boring. Like I don't, I don't want to use the term boring. I I find it more basic 
And and like I said, I I just it's not it's not to the level of interest that is going to make me want to sit down and dissect this thing again. Mm. That I, so if I said boring, I, I no, I, I'm not, your review said something about a life sentence, like it felt like a life sentence. Yeah, like I said, I don't agree with all of this review. I th- <laughs> I think what I do agree with is it it really it really does what Forrest Gump does to a certain degree, and it says. Uh, you know, Forrest and Jenny or Forrest's adventures and Jenny, it's going it's to be about Forrest and Jenny. This thing is about Andy and Red. And the best thing about Forrest Gump is that relationship. And the best thing about this is that relationship. But what I I find where I can't sit down and watch this thing over and over again is because if I watch it again, there's not much to dissect here, in my opinion. There, there's nothing else for me to gather outside of, do I like spending time with those two guys and um, Haywood and all? Yeah, those sequences are great. But for a two and a half hour film, I want something else there if I'm going to rewatch it. I, w- I want a couple of other layers that when I peel it back, I'm going to find something else in that story. Um, and I just don't think that's here. I think you, you know, you see two men discover freedom in their friendship. That's fantastic. That that's a very but it is it and I'm not sliding it for that, but I'm just saying I don't understand why some people call this like one of the greatest movies of all time. It it, it isn't. <laughs> it's in a good opinion. movie. It's a, in, yeah, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah. It it's a it's a really good movie, but I I just to sit there and, and say, man, it makes you feel really good. And it does. I'd be like, cool. Awesome. Yeah. That, that doesn't warrant like great American storytelling in my opinion. Well, I, t- to me, there's only like two films where narration has worked. Goodfellas in the Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. And I, and I think, I think Freeman's narration of this film is spot on. I think it's, it it helps with the film. I think it. He's not an unreliable unreliable narrator, so things that happen like happen. It, it's really. I I would I would only disagree slightly. So there's no doubt the best yeah. narrator in any film in the game is Morgan Freeman. Yeah. I'll give you that. Yeah, and, I mean, this is the genesis of it. Yep. So, he, I, I will say this about the narration. The narration is okay. I I think it does a little bit more telling than it should. But the narration doesn't take away from how good the performances are, are in and oh, of itself. Yeah. So yeah. that's the thing. If, if these performances weren't as good as they are, I think the narration might be a problem, actually, because yeah. it tells you everything. Yeah. So and, and this is going to make me sound mean, but we've had this conversation before. The average person is stupid. that's not how we put it but just think about it yeah no average person is not as smart as most people that's you know your your average person isn't very smart um because you think the most average person you know intelligence wise half the people are dumber than that basically and so i would say so when we so what i'm saying is it most people don't watch hundreds and thousands of films so they need their handheld a little bit more than other film viewers. 
I don't so, I don't disagree so, with that 100%. So I I, yeah. I think I think sometimes we as film connoisseurs want every film to be made for us. And it's not. They're not. No, I I agree with that. I I think what happens with these movies, it, it kind of comes down to the end, right? So I think Darabont, some others wanted to leave the film in a bit mm-hmm. more of a mysterious, like, hey, what's going to happen? I mean, take Test no, audiences didn't like that. Yep. Take No Country for Old Men. I mean, that ending will have people talking for a long time because yep. there is some mystery to it, right? Yep. And I, I do like these films that bring something to you that, as you describe it, um, end up acting a little bit like a Rorschach test. And it tells you a little bit more about the person as they see the film than the film itself too. Right. Well, yeah, because I remember opening day going to see, Oh, or not Oh brother, but um, there would be blood. Yeah. And the first 15 to 20 minutes, there's no dialogue. A guy got up with his wife and as he's walking out and says, is he ever going to fucking talk? And they left and they never came back. And I thought, I think about that all the time that you could sit there through one of the most amazing intros to a film and be upset because the guy didn't talk for the first 15 minutes of the film. And when I think about film critique and film discussion, I think about that guy because he wants something that most people want and what a lot of film directors are kind of pressured into making Darabont, I think made choices in this because he wanted to get it done because this was his first film, but he had to take a lot from the studio and a lot of studio notes and say, no, we need to see red and we need to see Andy on the beach together. We know we, we can't, you know, they've gone through too much. This audience has gone through too much. They've seen, so much rape and so much brutality that we need to see this happy ending because people are going to be mad that they sat through all that stuff to not see red and Andy on the beach. Um, and I get it. I, I think, you know, I, whether or not I think the choice is right or wrong, like in my mind, they were always going to get together anyway. So seeing, seeing them together doesn't bother me. Um, but I guess if you thought differently and then it, it goes against your, your initial gut reaction to how you feel the film should go. Yeah. And I, um, I really don't have an issue with the ending at all. I, like I don't have an issue with the, the story outside of it being too long. I guess my biggest issue is it starts to pick up these threads that I do find kind of interesting and it doesn't necessarily go with it anywhere. So I, I, so what do you think? What do you think of like Brooks? I like think that, that was super minute tangent. I, that I, I go thought on. that was pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, and they, they kind of bring it back. So to your point, they bring it back at the end with red to a certain degree, the institutionalized, but I, I think where it happens in the story and what they do with it towards the end of the film, there just feels like a disconnect to it to where it isn't a fully formed thought or thesis of what they're trying to take on the institutionalization piece of it. I, I don't I mean, know if it's, I don't know if this is about that though. I, d- I don't, I know it's not, I know the central core and the central mm-hmm. theme is the relationship between red and Andy. Mm-hmm. I get that. 
Yep. But that's the problem, I think, with this film, in my opinion, is when you start doing more things outside of that core story and you have these additional subplots and these additional ideas, et cetera, and you don't handle them thoughtfully and actually create something of um, a thorough way through the entire film where it's just always there and then you see what it's saying. Like, I don't know what it's saying about institutionalization. I, I almost get the I almost get the feeling where it's like, if somebody becomes institutionalized and they get to this point, don't ever let them out. And in fact, uh, these guys that are stuck in prison for the rest of their lives, they're doing okay. I don't, I don't think it's trying to say that, no, I, but I, it almost feels like there's hints of it. Like it, it, it really comes down to, I, I think the message is half baked on some of these ideas and they don't finish them because they got to get back to that core story. So it's either take some of that stuff out or hell go to three hours instead of two and a half hours and really do something with, with those subplots. Well, I, I mean, I think it's kind of showing that our prison system essentially just throws these guys back out into society and says, figure it out. And they've had to ask the P for 40 years. And and so they, they don't know what to do. Yes. And then Morgan the Freeman narrates, I've had to ask for P. I mean, <laughs> Yeah, but 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 like again, like we do that take this as like a military film and like we would do that for guys that come back from from you know action or from combat and we just throw them back into society. Um you know, every war film or where guys come back, we always show that because that's a part of being reintroduced into society is like we don't do anything for these guys. And for same thing for our prisoners, we just kind of say, figure it out. And I think it's just a part of being in prison. If you're going to sh- have guys leave, um, because just as your basic rotation of characters, it's like, you kind of have to talk about that because it's there. Um, but I don't know. I, I think it all sort of plays to further the suspense on whether or not red, gets to the finish line. Yeah, I, ne- I never so, thought I never thought he was going to commit suicide. I, there, there's, well, a, there's a point in this film where it kind of shows all its cards. Like there's um, when when Andy explains how he created the fake person and what he's doing towards money, you're like, oh, I know where this is going. Yeah, yeah. There, there are some things within even Red's narration and the fact that Red is narrating this thing. I'm like, Red is not going to commit suicide because red's the narrator. Yeah. He's a, yep, yep. So there, there are some basic storytelling elements that are all there in terms of foreshadowing and everything else where if, if you've watched enough movies, you're going to pick it up and go, yeah, I get it. Now we know the average moviegoer goes five or six times a year. And so if they ran across Shawshank redemption, or if they're watching it, one of the 50 times that it shows on, you know, Turner, uh, I, I do think people fall in love with this film the way they fall in love with their favorite old blanket and it's nice, warm and cozy. But if we're talking about like one of the great, it, if we were rating film on, Hey, what are just the nice comfort food, right? Yes. Shawshank redemption is top tier comfort food of entertainment. McDonald's has sold what? Like 5 billion this, cheeseburgers or whatever. I, I'm glad you said that. I was just about to say, this is the, mcdonald's 
of, of movie entertainment, in my opinion. It is the best thing. And I'm, I'm telling you, I do love my chicken nuggets. I love McDonald's French fries. <laughs> I, I love a quarter pounder. Um, they are terrible for me, but I, I do love having them every once in a while. And it is the greatest comfort food, right? How, I, I how, will, however, oh, McDonald's <laughs> is, is probably, uh, and I'm trying to think of a chain where people would know McDonald's is not Ruth Chris. That's, that's a famous chain steak place, right? Yeah. And yeah. there's a little bit more quality five-star restaurant ingredients. McDonald's isn't even five guys. McDonald's isn't even five guys. But I, if, if you're saying like, okay, cool hand Luke would be the Ruth Chris steakhouse version. Ah. Shawshank redemption for me is the McDonald's version. I like them both. I do. Yeah. I just find more to appreciate in cool hand Luke and more to dissect and more to pick apart. And it speaks to me a little bit more than what Shawshank redemption does. I think Shawshank redemption is a good film. Um, but it would be the same thing for you where you like, Hey, doesn't matter when this is on, I'm going to sit down and watch it. Same could be for me and singing in the rain. I don't care if singing in the rain's got 10 minutes left or the, you know, the full runtime. If I see it on, I'm going to watch it. Yep. So I get it. So fuck all that. I want to hear about what you think of, of the ending, the last say 40 minutes. Well, the first 20 where Andy escapes. And then there's like a second ending where it's like kind of, scooby-doo ending there where it's very happy at the end Uh, yeah it's it's like okay that that's gonna happen it didn't surprise me okay no i wasn't surprised wow okay i thought it would have had some sort of impact i i would have been more surprised if like uh tim robbins killed himself because to me that's not where the movie was going if if this if this film had any tragedy to to the end of it that would have surprised me yeah i i just there is a feeling i get after he comes out of solitaire solitary confinement that i feel like he's broken at some point in time and even red gets that that i think they they do a good job of of hiding it a little bit that maybe there's something else going on with andy um but I, I, I still think that escape is one of my favorite sequences in film history, to be honest with you. Really? Yes. Yeah, I don't yeah. see that. When the warden comes into his cell and starts freaking out, and then he throws the chess piece through the thing, and then they kind of show what happens, which we can break down of everything that had to go <laughs> right that night uh, for it to, to work out. But it's a movie, blah, blah, blah. Who cares? Yeah, that's, but, how, that's how it works, right? There's, yeah. there's going to, there's going to be little plot contrivances and stuff like that. Yeah. that make for it. I, I don't like how, how does he know in 1966 or whatever year it is that it's going to rain that night. And but Bob, there's Gun- gonna be lightning. Uh, Bob Gunton is so good as the warden. Yeah. I, I believe, I believe everything about it, but, but to me, there was nothing in this film. Uh, so when he gets out of that second round of solitary confinement, cause he's in there for like two months or something, right? Mm-hmm. He says, Oh, I'm not going to do your books. And they're like, yeah, you are. And this is what's going to happen. And, and I just shot this guy and uh, that's going to happen you to called, you. You called me obtuse. Yeah. You think he was mad that he called him obtuse or cause the warden didn't know what obtuse meant. See, I love that scene. Like that scene was so the, uh, the warden is such a good villain. Mm-hmm. I think Clancy Brown proves once again, 
If he's in a scene, he's just going to steal it from everybody. He's just so menacing in this thing. And what's crazy is his scenes are so good that you're always thinking about him just hovering in the background, even when you don't see him. Mm -hmm. That's how good he is. So that's why I would say like everybody in this film, top to bottom. Two things happened that night, Troy. <laughs> Boggs never, or the sisters never touched Andy and Boggs never walked again. Yeah. But it, again, they're those characters of a warden and a prison guard are done so well and with such menace that they're always top of mind on whatever Andy and red are doing, which I think heightens these friendship elements that they have. There's real danger. Like what I like about this film is there's always real danger hovering in every corner, but I never thought, and it could be Morgan Freeman's narration, how he's telling the story. It could be Tim Robbins performance. I never thought that, um, that friendship would not end where it ends. And, uh, I, I guess maybe a better way of saying it is, you know, the the thing this movie, I don't think does great is hide its first, second and third act, uh, milestones. Cause in some movies you, you, you watch it and you go, Oh, we're in the second act. Yeah. Oh, we're in the third act. Right. So when he comes out of that cell and then you think he's broke, you're like, Oh, we're in the third act structure piece now. <laughs> yes, <we're, laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, and, and to me, I and think, it's really like 40, 40, 40 there. It's like 40 minutes, yeah. 40 minutes, and then 40 minutes. Yep. So that, again, I agree with you. I, I actually don't think this movie has a ton of technical problems. It doesn't have a ton of storytelling problems. My biggest thing is it's juggling, I think, a little too much. And it doesn't, um, it doesn't nail down some of the story elements or even its thoughts on some of these tangent, tangential ideas it picks up like um, – you know, what happens with self-worth, what help, what happens with incarceration. Um, it, it hits, it hits all the story beats and it's good at telling a story, but outside of the friendship, nothing else really moves me. I'm not surprised by anything. Well, I don't film. think it's supposed to really, well, then what's, I, I it, what's it supposed to do? Like how, if it's not supposed to, how can this be such a monumental groundbreaking beloved film? I mean, well, I mean, I'm not saying it's not, like it's not going to, but I think, they sacrifice a lot for that friendship aspect of, of, of the film. I don't that sacrifice is kind of a, a strong word, but I, I think it's all in, it pales in comparison to what they're trying to drive home with red and with Andy and even with the other guys and Floyd and, and all those guys. Like it's just these finding friendships in places where it seems like all hope is lost And yes, it's, it's not subtle about that stuff, but I don't know. I thought you were going to have a way more of a problem. Like when, when Tommy shows up no, I, and, I, and it kind of takes a detour and you're like, I don't know. We're, we're looking at two hours and 20 minutes. Do we really need to learn about a guy taking his GED? Like, I think you can cut the GED stuff out and you could still be like, Oh, I heard about this guy where I was in, you know, he could get all that stuff. But them killing him and him working with Tommy and him feeling like, Hey, this is also helping my self-worth that, you know, they're kind of trying to kill me in more ways than one um, by this. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, the, the, it's a twist, right? I there's Tommy showing up and saying, Hey, I know who actually did this crime and it's not you. And then what happens to Tommy? 
all of these twists that come out at the end of it, they're, they're well told twists within mm-hmm. a story, but this isn't designed as a thriller. At least I don't think it is. And uh, I don't get the thriller aspect of it. I mean, that I think the escape is pretty thrilling. Uh, you, you weren't thrilled at all with the escape stuff or he chipped through a wall and climbed through sewage. Oh, okay. All right. Well, <laughs> it took him 20 years to chip the wall. That's impressive. Yeah. So did you know that they were going to show that scene like 45 minutes into the film where the wall chips off? And I think it loses a lot of impact if you know when he initially starts chipping at the wall, you know, when he's writing his name, Yeah. that it like chips off and he's like, oh, I can, I can, you know, break through this. I, I think that's a great choice to, to 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 keep that scene until the very end because i think it, that scene when he escapes loses way more impact if we know it's possible yeah and and maybe i'm not maybe i'm not getting my so all of the things that have to do with andy all of the things that have to do with andy and red's friendship all of that is a plus material and mm-hmm. it's a plus storytelling uh, and anything that you get down to the prison escape to the menacing warden and guards, all of that stuff's fantastic. It's when it does these, like the Brooks thing. I, I think that's interesting. And I actually kind of perk up a little bit and, Oh, what, what's going on? What are, what are they trying to say about institutionalization? Um, what are they doing with these characters? Um, they're not, they're not, they're, they're just trying to make it suspenseful for the red purpose. Really? I think that's all it kind of plays. Yeah. And if you're going to do that, then I would, it's to where you're talking about, get rid of the GED thing. I would say, we'll find another way to get red into a position within five minutes versus 15 or 20 minutes with Brooks. Then if that, if, if you have nothing to say about institutionalization or the prison system, Brooks is a cool character. Oh, I, I, I liked him. I liked all the stuff with Brooks, but I don't think it goes anywhere. Outside of you get to see Red start to repeat his his routine, and then Red signs his name on the the you know Red was here like Brooks was here, um, and again maybe on a rewatch. Don't you think they would probably cover that up or something like like the dude hung himself right underneath that? I don't think that uh, <laughs> maybe because it's a halfway house, is, they don't really give a shit. So yeah, it's putting like, much money into it. I don't know. Like I said, I just. I read so many reviews about this being just, you know, a a perfect storytelling and Frank Darabont just, you know, commanding every aspect of Andy and red story uh, and, and, you know, how the narration works, et cetera. I just think it bites off more than it can chew in some instances. And some of the things that it tries to tackle, it doesn't, it doesn't really come to a full fulfilling resolution. However, the friendship aspect comes to a fulfilling resolution. The the breakout, it's interesting. Not exciting, not thrilling. It's interesting. You've probably, even through osmosis, kind of knew the beats of this film, right? I think, again, you already said it. For somebody who has watched a ton of films, you know the beats of this film. For yeah. the average moviegoer, I'm sure somebody like lost their shit when all of a sudden that little, you know, uh, chess piece breaks the poster, I'm sure everybody's, you know, well, I did in 1995. I mean, it was like the, but you're 12. Yeah. 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 So I, I, I get it. Like I, I could totally understand that if you haven't seen a ton of prison films, then this is going to seem fresh and interesting to you. 
Like, I, hey, look, if I saw this in 94, I could, you and I could spend two hours like, oh my God, Josh Inc. Redemption is the greatest Stephen King adaption ever made. I saw it in my 50s <laughs> after seeing, you know, yeah. how many years of I mean, it's film, almost 30 years old now. It is. And when you come to a film this late in the game, now you're looking at it and just saying, okay, from a storytelling narrative piece, and I, I get it. Like, I, I almost want to say that people were brainwashed as many times as this was on TV. People were brainwashed to think this this was like a piece of American art and one of the greatest films of all time. You can say the same thing about The Wizard of Oz. I, I agree. I don't think that's the case, but I would also say Wizard of Oz, when it pulls all these different strings and has all these different subplots and all these different messages does a really good job of sticking the landing of those messages. I think Shawshank Redemption feels a little messy in some parts, but it definitely nails down that that theme of discovering freedom and friendship. It's got that down. Can we, I, I don't want to I don't want to like miss this chance, but yeah. I Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman are amazing. I, I I I can't I can't imagine anyone playing these roles. And when you hear about people like Tom Cruise, you're like. I, it would have been interesting. It would have had a way different energy. I think Robbins is perfect for Dufresne because he's supposed to be this like weird, lanky, sort of awkward guy. Tom Cruise isn't that. Now, Tom Cruise could have definitely fit in that pipe a lot easier. He ain't fitting in that suit, though. So No, there's, there's something about Tim Robbins. What I've always liked about Tim Robbins is uh, he can take it up to an 11. If you watch a movie, what was the one he did with Robin Williams? Cadillac Man? Mm-hmm. Um, he can he can take it up to something that is very over the top. He can be very loud, and he could uh, kind of bulldoze over everybody in a scene when he wants to. I think he's perfect for this film because the thing that he he becomes the center of attention by just not having any attention drawn to him. Mm-hmm. which is which is ironic weird. to yeah, say it's right weird. it's weird it's weird to say it's you, you have, as to have a, a viewer, different sort of charisma to like want attention but not ask for it really well you yeah it's weird as a viewer you're watching this guy who's giving this very subtle performance who's trying to not gain attention from others but his act of doing so makes you interested in him mm-hmm. and i think that's something that not enough people talk about his performance like I know everybody loves Morgan Freeman. Morgan Freeman's amazing. Red's an amazing character. I actually think Tim Robbins is the best thing about the Shawshank Redemption. Not so much Morgan Freeman. Yeah, I, yeah. It's hard to say. It's hard to say. I, now their relationship, it's a powerhouse. Mm-hmm. And and that's the other thing. Like I think the narration's good. I I I think it gets a little schmaltzy in some pieces, but it, you never feel it because the performances overshadow the narration, which is a good thing for a movie like this. Yeah. Yeah. It, the narration never becomes distracting for me. Now I will say you were like, well, I never thought that, uh, you know, because Morgan Freeman is narrating this whole film that anything was going to happen to red. I will say the narration, they did watch Goodfellas like every Sunday while making this film because they wanted to take inspiration from that. Henry does narrate the majority of that film, but Karen does narrate some of it as well. So there could have been a switcheroo in this, but I, I never thought red was going to 
die. I never thought Andy was going to die, but I just thought they would be in there forever. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I, the escape from Shawshank to most people is up there with some of the greatest sort of reveals in, in cinema history. Um, the Tyler Durden, the, I was dead the whole time. Uh, no, no, I, I think so, man. I <laughs> no, think so man. with the lexicon of stuff. I, no I, way. I, I think so. No way. There is no way that I think, this, sh- th- there's no way that the reveal of the Shawshank redemption is going to be in the same conversation of something like fight club. There's no way. I, I'm just, I'm just telling you the, uh, the average movie. Goer, if you man, had just, seen 10 movies in your lifetime. Yes, I would agree with that. <laughs> you're giving people way too much credit. I get, look, you, 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 and I know you don't mean this. You're being very uh, general about people being dumb, right? Yeah. I, I think I think it comes down to this. Like, I look at it as I don't know if people are dumb. I just think they they transition between emotion and smarts in the most inopportune time. So sometimes yeah. they let their heart lead versus their head, and it gets them in trouble, and vice versa. Or they're thinking with other parts of their body. Um, <laughs> I just think people lack control more than smarts. Uh, and as a result of that, I think when you watch something that really is tugging at your heartstrings, uh, it, it could be that comfort food. It could be the McDonald's, right? And and it's fantastic at what it does. But there's there's nothing wrong with somebody saying, I really love this like you and going, man, it's it's top 10 film. The ending is the best. I, I get that. I'm, I might disagree in terms of quantitatively how this impacts uh, film history. But I would also say that this movie is a really good movie, but it doesn't move me the way that something like cool hand Luke did for me. Now that, that may mean I'm more cynical <laughs> because of how that movie ends. Um, than this maybe, I don't know, but yeah, I, 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 I get it. I get why people love this thing, but at the same time, I don't get why people, will say that this is like one of the most beloved films of all time. It's like, man, it's a little too basic for me. Yeah. But I think everyone's been exposed to it. Oh yeah. Everybody's <laughs> like been brainwashed. Seen, I get it. Everyone's seen it. And <laughs> like, like me and I'm sure you've had these with the same thing. It's like films that you saw with your parents or your family yeah. or all. The, that's why like all these Christmas movies, like Christmas story, like at the end of the day, is the Christmas story really that good of a movie? Probably not, but it makes us feel like we're at home with family. This makes me feel like I'm at home with my parents in our basement watching this film every time I see it. And I watched it last night and I talked to my mom this morning and we talked about Shawshank Redemption for like 10 minutes. And that's just kind of how it is because we watched it together, you, you know, and I, I think a lot of people have that with this, with this movie is Saturday night on TNT, Shawshank Redemption came on. We watched it as a family, which looking back on it is a little weird, but I guess on cable, <laughs> they cut out quite a bit. So no, 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 I, I get it. Like I said, I, I totally understand the, the love for this film at a certain degree. I just don't understand how it's been elevated. I, I ran across a list of like, what's the top 25 or 50 prison films. And, and this was number one. And I'm like, get out of here. No way. Mm-hmm. Like I, no, 
not at all. I, I like the Green Mile than, more than I like this one. Mm, uh, yeah, I mean. I think the Green Mile is more interesting than this one. Yeah. I, That's probably I, another whole nother I <laughs> hour think, debate. I don't know. I, I think maybe on subsequent watches, maybe this gets better for you. I don't know if you'll ever watch it again, but. I, I will. I, I This is not. I was kind of hoping going into this where I'm like, hey, I'm late to the party. But as soon as I watch this, is this going to be something where I'm just going to be fawning over like Deacon's photography and and just want to go back and watch a few scenes? Like I was really hoping between Robbins and Morgan Freeman or even Clancy Brown, like are, are there are there going to be a couple sequences I go back to and just watch again immediately after like I do with Goodfellas? I watch Goodfellas. And then I'll go back and watch some of my favorite scenes with Pesci, et cetera, and, and De Niro and, and Leota. I watch this. So you just I, watch it. You're watching the film over again. Then, kinda. I mean, to a certain yeah. degree, you kind of watch it as a whole, but then you go back and and watch your favorite hits, right? Mm-hmm. I I sort of thought that it would turn into this because I do that with Green Mile. There's a, there's a couple sequences of Green Mile where that really move me and get to me. And as soon as it's done, I like to go back and watch it. I mean, no offense to to the man because he's no longer with us, but Michael Clark Duncan is a little bit limited in his ability. So I, I don't know. I think that that's the biggest yeah. negative I can I can say on the Green Mile is I love Michael Clark Duncan. I thought he was great, but he was what he was, and he wasn't a Morgan Freeman. No, or a, or a Tim Robbins. But there was nothing in this film that, as soon as it was over, it was like, "Oh, I want to go back and watch that sequence mm. again because how, okay. how it was shot, or the dialogue, or the exchange." I uh, str- I strongly disagree. I, yeah, I I what what sequence in here that you would pick out and go if if you're showing a clip sh- sh- uh, show of hey here are the the top hundred film scenes of all time and Shawshank Redemption is going to have one. What, what sequence would it be? I don't know. I like when Andy and red first meet when red is throwing the baseball and he's like, Hey, I, I hear you're a guy who can get a guy something, but there's, there's nothing. It, it, there's nothing <laughs> that stands out about that scene that just is like, Oh wow. Did, they're just great performances. But yeah. There's nothing stunning. Like think of Pesci's, you, you call me a clown sequence. And how it goes from comedy to tension to back to comedy so quick, and how good those performances are in your yeah, edge. That's that's a straight up performance. Yeah. I, I, again, I, I think that's more memorable than anything else in this film. Well, that's arguably like one of the 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 most famous scenes in cinema. It history. is, but on paper, everybody says arguably this is the most beloved, greatest film ever made, and I'm calling bullshit on that. Well, you know, also on the roof, would you know? Do you trust your wife? That scene, you you could. Um, I'll give you that. I, the I, opera, the opera singer scene, where you know you finally get that overhead shot of kind of everyone listening up. I think that's a beautiful shot scene, and I don't know if the sound quality would have been that great for a 1940s PA system, but I, I think that's a standout scene, and. Um, it kind of ends with the breaking of the glass with Hadley and stuff. I think that stands out. It's okay. Cause it's composed, it's composed immaculately and you kind of get a lay of the land with, with Shawshank and, and all that stuff. So I, I don't know. I think you might be selling some of the technical stuff short as well. Yeah, maybe I, it just, it didn't wow me. 
it, it just didn't. Okay. I think it's I think it's good. It might be the runtime. I don't know. Um it it just it felt like a short story stretched out to two and a half hours. I mm-hmm. felt it. Where you say it two and a half hours went by, it, it didn't for me. It's mm-hmm. great performances. It doesn't really speak to me deeply. Um it's a good story. Uh it, it I I can't compare it to Cool Hand Luke, even though I keep talking about that because I think they're still two really because you have for the last hour. I, I know. So. There's yeah. they're two completely different films. I just think from an artistry storytelling uh, layered perspective. One is a masterpiece and the other one's a really good film. Uh, they're, they both, you know, tackle some of the same subjects. I think one does it artfully better. And the other one is, is really good fast food. That's fine. That's fine. Yeah. We can disagree. Yeah, no, I, and I, I, I love that you love this film. I'll say this on 4k. It looks beautiful. It does look pretty, my pretty goodness. I mean, it's it's stunning. Uh, Deacon's photography really shines from it. <laughs> hey, that guy might that guy might work out. Well, what's amazing is it really shines for a film that is tone wise so gray. Gray. That's why I like the the rooftop scene so much. Is like you get that kind of all those colors when they're sitting up on the roof. It it really kind of changes things up a bit. Yeah, it does. I just uh, I don't know. I. I it makes me appreciate Tim Robbins more mm-hmm. than yeah. I did. <laughs> I already held him in high regard, but man, this is this is one of his best, best performances. I, I just I don't know. I just don't think Darabont brings it all home. That's my only problem. Well, I mean that makes sense, right? He's a rookie director. This is a big, difficult picture. Yeah. No, I get you it. Could, you could say he's lucky that. It turned out the way it did. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. I mean, because it could be. A- it was, it had, to, but I mean, it's a good story. It's a good script. I'll say this. It's a good story. It's a good script. That's half the battle right there. Right. Yeah. So as long as you stick to the script, you're not going to screw it up that much. I mean, cause there was, there was, cause I think Darabont does like Kubrick a lot. And I think he was going for the, let's do 50 shots or 50 takes. Um, just for the hell of it sort of deal. And I don't think Freeman liked that because, you know, Morgan Freeman just got done working with uh, Clint Eastwood on Unforgiven and Eastwood's like one and done. And now yeah. he's going to this guy who's never directed a film and wants to do it a hundred times for seemingly no reason. So, yeah. And I, I know, I know Freeman and Robbins both said, you know, it was the script. Morgan Freeman didn't know what part he was going to play. Uh, when he read the script, he's like, I want to do it. I don't care what it is you know, just get me into the thing. And they're like, how about red? He's like, okay. So, um, I, I think it started out as a good script. I think it's a really interesting story and that friendship a plus I get it. (laughs) Just, I I don't know. I, I think some other subplots are, I just are not satisfying to me. Okay. That's the, that's the, if, I would agree with everything you say on this film in terms of how it's shot, edited, performances, etc. But the only problem is maybe in the editing, maybe in some of the choices they made in the script, those subplots and kind of bringing some cohesiveness to that, I, I feel is really the only negative thing I have against the film. But it's a pretty big negative in my opinion, which kind of makes me feel like, okay, that 
it's a really, really good film, but it, it shouldn't be in the pantheon, in my opinion, of where it lands on all these lists. Yeah, there's a weight of 30 years on this thing, shoulders of being considered one of the best films ever. Yeah, and I get that. But I also think that's that's a lot of uh, brainwashing from Turner. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, hey, let's just get down to the question then. Uh, you know, we had a really good conversation. Well, hey, you got to be happy. I didn't like, I mean, I liked the film a yeah, lot. because I would have quit. I, I, oh, do you think I'm joking? Right. I would have. I would have walked over Shawshank Redemption. If I came in and like, man, it's not really that good. Yeah. I, cause I would have been like, I, I think Troy's broken. <laughs> I, I am broken. <laughs> well, I mean, if okay. you can't enjoy a, a, a movie about platonic male friendship and I don't want to be your friend anymore. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> no, that's some weight. Uh, right. Troy. Yeah. The Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. It's not a bomb. Good. Well, I agree with you 100%. It's not a bomb, definitely. And and if you haven't seen it, there might be one other person out there. I doubt it. I think I was the last one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, go watch it. I, um, I, I think you'll enjoy it. It's really good. But if you haven't seen Cool Hand Luke, go watch that too, since I've talked about it for an hour. Yeah, maybe I need to go, maybe I need to go back and watch that now. Well, we, that wraps up november and it wraps up uh doing a bunch of prestigious films that bombed at the box office what are we going into next month yeah so next month we are going into december oh boy december and we decided to look back on the year of 2022 and look back at some of the biggest bombs of the year so troy we have four films uh picked out and they are as follows Oh, you, you want to list your two and I'll list my two? Yeah. Right. Uh, let's see. Oh, I picked I picked Morbius. Oh, boy. And Moonfall. I wow. went for the M's. You did. Why did you pick those two? I'm just curious. I bought them recently and want to see them, and I haven't yet, and just looking for an excuse. You guys have – I think you've seen Moonfall already. No, I haven't or seen no. either of them. Some of our friends have seen it that we, we, we text around with, and – uh they were saying it's really dumb and I'm hoping that it's so dumb that I like it. And then Morbius is just, I'm just curious. Yes. I don't know. Sony released it twice. (laughs) Sony released it twice. Thinking bombed twice (laughs) (laughs) that, that people were really excited to get it back out there. Um, based on social media, I don't understand how meme works. Yeah. Uh, okay. My two. So I've seen one of mine. Uh, the, the two movies I wanted to pick, if we were talking about this year, w- one of them was going to be the Norseman, but we ended up talking about that with our good friend, um, Sammy and will of the gentleman's guide to midnight cinema. So, uh, go listen to that episode. But for this month, the first movie that I picked <laughs> was one that I had a lot of fun in the theater seeing with Cameron. And I kind of thought, yeah, this one's going to do okay, and it didn't, which surprised me. And it has one of our favorite actors that we like talking about, and that's none other than Nicolas Cage. So my first pick is The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. I'm really excited about talking to this one. Yep. The other movie I picked is, again, I love this actress. I have not seen the film. I've heard great things about it. I kind of thought this would be an indie darling, but it looks like it came and went in the theaters rather quickly. Uh, and nobody's talking about it, which kind of bothers me. So I wanted to pick um, Emily the Criminal starring Aubrey Plaza. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Have you seen Black Bear? Uh, no. Okay. She's in Black Bear. I really like that film as well. So. Yeah, I like her yeah, choices. I'm, she she mm, will do a lot of indie stuff, then do a couple of Hollywood. And I think yeah. in terms of dramatic and comedic uh, talent, um, she's top tier, man. Agreed. Agreed for sure. Yeah. So if, I don't know, you happen to run across any of these films on sale, which I'm sure they are with Christmas around the corner, uh, you can pick them up digitally or physically and uh, grab those four films because that's what we're watching next month. We're We're – you know what? In probably the last episode of this year, we should probably go ahead and put our top five list together of the year. Yeah, I've, I've been working on on that. Um, I've got some holes I need to fill with some stuff I haven't seen just yet. Yeah, uh, me too. I got my, a lot. My, yeah. my, my top five is almost there. I've got you, – you, you start off with – I think I had like 15 films I would consider, and then you whittle it down and whittle it down. So I'm getting there. I'll be ready by the end of the year. I know what my – top three are for sure yeah me too there's not, nothing's gonna shake my top three yeah really comes down to four and five okay so uh how do people share their thoughts on the shawshank redemption or give us movies that um we should be reviewing for next year little spoiler folks this is how good brad and i are we've we picked a film like the very first movie we're going to talk about in 2023 Today, it was just announced it's getting a 4K release in 2023, which I thought was kind of funny. Uh, but I don't want to delay and wait for that release to come out. So um, I don't know if you knew that, Brad. I didn't. Yeah, which is funny because we're always talking about why do the movies that we end up talking about end up getting some fancy release? Yep. Well, we're starting the year with one of those. So that's awesome. How do, how do people get a hold of us? Yeah, that's not a bomb pod at gmail.com. You can also hit us up on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Um, you can also go to not a bomb podcast.com and hit the contact us button there and leave us a recommendation or comment or question there as well. Yeah. And tell us what changes you think we should be making next year. Yeah. So, if any. Yeah. We, <laughs> if you like the show as is, tell us, um, leave us a review if possible. If you think we should do a little bit more of something or a little less of something, let us know because we uh, we plan to mix it up a little bit going into next year too, just based on feedback. Yeah, and and you and I have have had a lot of guests on recently, and then for this month it's been mostly me and you just because. But I I love having that third person or fourth person. But you know sometimes it is nice just having you and me. Yeah, so. well, that's not going to change. We'll always mix it up to just us yep. add people, yep. then go back to us. So. Uh, there's a lot of great podcasts you can listen to. Go over to the website, click on our page for friends of not a bomb. Um, yeah. Like gentleman's guide, watch, get plus VHS files, uh, night of living podcast, Backlook cinema podcast, and the mix mix tape podcast. Yes. Well, Turkey day is over. We're getting ready to get into the holiday season. We're going to talk about a bunch of movies, that bombed from this year, Brad, anything else we need to get ready for? No, I'm turning 40 in like six weeks. Yeah, you're getting there. It's yeah, knocking on the door. I'm excited for you. <laughs> okay. Well, I don't know if you are listening in the morning, the afternoon or evening. Thank you for downloading the episode. Thank you for listening to our discussion on the Shawshank Redemption. We are kicking things off next week with the unbearable weight of massive talent. That's the first one up. So go rent it or buy it and then come back here next week to hear our thoughts on it. 
get busy living or get busy dying. <laughs> See you folks. <laughs>